Mary had an alabaster box. You know, I, we have sung about alabaster for years. Thine alabaster cities, you know, we sing about alabaster. But alabaster, if you don't know what it is, it's a soft stone that is easily carved. And apparently this was a delicately carved box or a vial. We hear different ones mentioned in different ones of the Gospels, but it's filled with a costly perfume. And uh, these vials or these boxes would be sealed shut to keep from wasting the precious uh, contents. I was looking this last week and uh I'm going to get the name wrong, but you know what the most expensive perfume is now? It's something called like Shamuk, S-H-U-M-U-K-H. And uh, I think the last time I saw it, it was $1.29 million for an ounce. Now... The vial that it comes in, it has a five carat diamond on top of it. I mean, the vial adds some value to it, but uh, then there's another that costs $215,000 an ounce. And uh, let's see, Chanel number five comes in somewhere up in there, but not near the Shamuk price. But this, back in those days, uh, this 300 denarii was the same amount as a, uh, a, a, a common laborer's wage for an entire year. So it would be like thirty to $35,000 is how much this small vial of perfume would have cost. It was not something to be wasted. It was precious. And here we see in the gospel accounts that Jesus is having a feast with uh, his friends. In some of the accounts, we see that both Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there at the table. Well, uh, actually, Lazarus is there at the table that he has just raised from the dead a few days before. Martha is serving. Can you imagine that? Martha is, is taking care of things and making sure that things are served right. And she's doing it not in a, uh, some sort of a miffed way like she was last time that we saw Mary and Martha at a meal together where Martha had chided Jesus for not getting on to Mary for uh, not helping with all the arrangements and all. Martha's learned her lesson. But this is just, I, th- I, th- I think a lot of times Martha gets a bad rap because Martha learned that We don't all have to do the same thing. And Mary had chosen something even more important. But here, everything's harmonious between Martha and Mary. And Mary winds up 
once more for the third time at the feet of Jesus. When Lazarus died, she ran out and she fell at his feet. And then there was another time when she was before that, when he was visiting their home. And that's whenever Martha was hustling and bustling and getting her nose bit out of joint and scolding Jesus. Can you imagine that? Because he wasn't making Martha do the right thing. I mean, Mary do the right thing. But Mary was at the feet of Jesus. And whenever she was uh, at the feet of Jesus at that time, Jesus defended her. And this time, whenever she just extravagantly worships the Lord, he defends her. She's done a good thing. I want us to look at what happened that day. Mary shared with Jesus in a spectacular way the most precious thing she had. We don't know why she was saving this. This was one of the ways since women didn't normally under normal circumstances have property. One of the ways they could uh, provide for the have have a way to provide for themselves for uh, self-preservation in case something happened and things went went wrong was they accumulated uh, valuable things like jewelry, necklaces uh, and uh, vials of perfume. Another thing is uh, that sometimes whenever a man proposed to a woman, if she accepted, she would break a vial. She would kneel and break a vial of costly perfume and anoint her fiance's feet as a declaration. I give my all to you, which is just a beautiful thing. She may have been saving this for her marriage. We don't know exactly why she had it. She could, and it very well could have been, that it's because she got it. She got what Jesus was all about. And she did. She and Martha both did. Martha confessed him as the one who was the son of God, the Christ, the living son of God. Martha confessed that the same as Peter did at one point, shortly before he got on to Jesus for wanting to go to Jerusalem and die. Even after he made that confession, he still didn't get the whole picture. He still had his own aspirations and hopes for Jesus that didn't line up with God's plan for Jesus. But Mary and Martha both got it. Mary heard him say that he was going to Jerusalem to die. He was there at her house on the week that he had come to die. You anoint the dead with precious perfume. And it could be she knew from what Jesus had described about how they were going to take him. She'd heard all this and she believed it. She believed the whole thing and she owed him everything. Her brother was dead. He brought him back to life. And now here is the precious 
Lamb of God that John the Baptist, as things began, had pronounced, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God had come to Passover to be a sacrifice. She probably had bought this to anoint her beloved after he died. But then it could be that that evening she realized, wait a minute, this is the Paschal Lamb of God. The lambs that were brought to be offered as a sacrifice six days before when they got were brought to Jerusalem, their feet were anointed with oil. And then they were examined for uh, five more days. And then on the fifth day, after they were inspected and seen to be without spot or blemish, a perfect sacrifice, then their head was anointed with oil to as a seal. Yes, this is an acceptable sacrifice. Maybe all of a sudden it just went over her. The Lamb of God should be anointed. Nobody's going to anoint the most wonderful and perfect sacrifice in the whole world. And so she remembers her vial that she was saving. The most precious thing that she had, either to anoint him with for his death or to pour out on her husband's feet, or for what, or to say for her future, to, to preserve, to have some sort of a, a protection in the future, whatever it was, it was all tied up in that, and it was his. And so she anointed his feet, and she wiped her hair with his feet. And then we see in the other Gospels that she poured the rest of it on his head. And so now it was complete. The sacrificial lamb that will take away the sins of the whole world has now been anointed and is ready for the sacrifice, ready for the cross. This is her security uh, her hopes her dreams they were all tied to that alabaster box and its costly contents and she made a statement at that point in time that Jesus was more precious than anything else or anyone else to her. What more could she hope for than just Jesus? I wonder how many of us ever really truly get that. That's, that's, who, that's all we should hope for is just him. Because when he is in his proper place, everything else falls into its proper place. As I said, he'd raised her brother from the dead and his, her brother sitting right there with him. He had been an encourager to her. He had been a defender of her. Two times in the past, he's defended her and getting ready to do it again. 
she got it all the way up and down. And while his disciples that have been following him around, those that he's chosen to become apostles, they're still jockeying for position uh, in the administration that they think Jesus is going to be having to set up after he successfully leads the rebellion that he's getting ready to start any minute now, right? They don't understand what Jesus is saying when he tells them that he has come to Jerusalem at this time to die and then rise again on the third day. Now, one of them got it. Judas got it. And uh, the thing is, I'm thinking that Judas got it in a way that uh, I think he got it after Judas rebuked him. I think he finally saw the handwriting on the wall. Whenever Judas uh, rebukes her, and he's the one that brings it up. This could have been sold to, uh, uh, to, to help the poor. And uh, is getting on to her. You see Jesus' value to Judas, don't you? Jesus is just a side issue. It's about a cause or a position. Either Jesus is a way to get to a position that he wants to hold, or he's a part of a cause that Judas is wanting to uphold, or both. But in the middle of all of it, he is exploiting the poor to line his own pockets. We're told he is a thief and that he's exploiting the poor. He's making this big noise about the poor for his own benefit. That's pretty modern, isn't it? How many politicians do that? I mean, how many? Uh, oh, the poor, the poor living in three million dollar houses and uh, I don't want to get off on that. I'm sorry. But uh, but the, this is not a new thing. Judas was right in there with them. And some of them were right in there with him. I'll just go ahead and say it. But the thing is, Judas got it. Judas understood now that Jesus wasn't going to be leading a rebellion. Jesus wasn't going to be uh, uh, instigating a new kingdom. He wasn't going to have the chance to be in a high-ranking office in a new government. Mary gave all she had to Jesus. Judas decided to just get what he could out of Jesus. Do you see the difference? And so many people, even attending church, it's for what they can get from Jesus and out of Jesus instead of what they can give him. Big difference, big difference. Mary got it, Judas got it, and all of a sudden he decides he needs to take his own track and just leave old Jesus behind. And so he goes to the priests. Mary understood. She had heard John the Baptist and she understood that he was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb, Jesus, is about to be sacrificed at the same time that the other lambs that were forerunners and precursors pointing the way to Jesus, they were going to be sacrificed at the same time Jesus was hanging on the cross. 
Passover lambs, as I mentioned, had their feet anointed first and then their heads were anointed to certify them as an acceptable sacrifice. The Lamb of God was going to the cross and she understood he was doing this for her. He was going to pay the price for her sins. He was about to die for her so that she could live. She understood what he said when we read John 3.16. He was giving his all for her. And the least that she could do for her Lord was to give her all to him. Her all was that alabaster box filled with costly perfume. And she gave it. The Lamb of God shouldn't go to the sacrifice without being anointed. Now, his body and his blood, in a way, were Jesus' alabaster box, weren't they? Because his body and blood were going to let something forth. As Mary's alabaster box was broken, it says that a, a beautiful fragrance filled the room. And Jesus was blessed with the anointing. He was blessed with that fragrance, which was a rare fragrance that not many people ever got to smell. But everyone in there also were blessed by that. We also see in another account, as I said, Mary wiped his feet with her hair. And so you know what? When she walked away from worshiping him by saying, Lord, you are worthy. That's what worship means, isn't it? Worship. You are worthy of all of me. When she walked away from that moment with his fragrance in her hair, she smelled a little like Jesus. And all of us, when we truly start living lives of worship, there's a fragrance about us. There's a difference about us because we have been worshiping and we live a life of worship for him. This is worship. She said with everything she had, you are worth it. When you truly worship Jesus, people will know just from being around you because you will be different. There'll be something of Jesus with you. And just as that perfume filled the air of that house when the body of Jesus was broken and his blood was poured out, forgiveness filled the world indiscriminately. He died for the sins of the world, not just the elect. He died for us all, whether we receive it or not. But it's not ours until we receive it. But his forgiveness filled the world. So what's your 
alabaster box. We know what Jesus' alabaster box was. His body and his blood. His very life. The essence of his life. That was his alabaster box. Broken for you. Which he pretty well lined out that last supper. This is my body. Broken for you. This is my blood. Shed for you and for many. For the forgiveness of sins. Mary. What was her alabaster box really? Her all. Her very being. So what is your alabaster box? It's your all at the moment. Because our alabaster box, we have the opportunity to break nearly every day. Sometimes we have the opportunity to break it in big ways. Sharon and I had the opportunity to do that when the Lord called us into ministry. And we just left everything, just like the disciples, to follow him. And he's kept his promises to us. But then there have been those unique moments, one after another. Sometimes my uh, alabaster box moment comes in connection with my children. Sometimes it's connection with my wife. Sometimes it's in connection with just something that the Lord has for me to do. We have the opportunity over and over again to pour ourselves out to him in different ways. We have the opportunity to uh, to bless him. And the thing is, you're always going to have enough when you give him your all because you cannot outgive God. Some people are still trying to serve the Lord in a fearful manner instead of in wild abandon like Mary did. But you know what? She got a whole lot more. She gets mentioned over and over again. Oh, in church all the time. And she got eternal life. She gets to be with the one she loved forevermore. I saw this prayer and uh, I think that uh, I, I like the, I'm just going to share it not as a prayer, just as a statement that, that kind of sums things up. Lord, I give you all my heart. I give you all that I am. Now listen to this. I give you full custody, not just weekend visits. I like that. That's Mary alabaster box breaking. I give you my all. I give you myself full custody every day, every day, not just weekend visits. I have an example of how this all fits together here. It's from a uh, a sermon that was delivered by Dr. Joel Weaver, who was preaching at Calvary Baptist Church in Waco, Texas, back in 2018. And he was talking about his father. His father was a, a, a Baptist minister. And uh, he was talking about, he started out talking about his father's upbringing. 
and his father and his mother both worked so hard. His uh, father died early when he was about five. And then his mom began to became a sharecropper and they were so poor. I think there were like 10 children in the family and she was having to support them as a sharecropper. And uh, I won't go through all the details, but I'll just pick this up because you see there came a time when officials came out and took uh, his father and his two twin sisters from the home and his father uh, Dr. Weaver's farmer never really knew why they were taken away but this is where I began they called his father Mac Mac was amazed at what awaited him at the children's home in Troy this is the Baptist children's home in Troy Alabama not only did they feed him every day they fed him three times a day. He had a bed to sleep in. And they even bought him clothes. Before the children's home, his wardrobe consisted of one pair of overalls. You washed them once a week. And there was nothing else to wear while they were being washed and dried. And I mean nothing else. Mac did not know what underwear, didn't know underwear was actually a thing. And he never had a pair of shoes that were actually bought for him. Sometimes he'd get hold of a secondhand pair. The children's home in Troy was on a 700 acre farm where he milked cows and worked with cattle. Everyone had their chores. He also had to go to school. The problem was he was way behind, way, way behind. And uh, he says, when my father was in the seventh grade, he didn't know how to read. He had a teacher named Ms. Brown and she was so, and he was so thankful she never called on him to read. He would sit there hour after hour daydreaming about playing football. And one day Ms. Brown had him stay after school and she said to him, you don't know how to read, do you? He replied, no, ma'am. Then she asked, would you like to learn? And he said, yes. And Ms. Brown met with Mac after school every single day. And he picked it up and he absolutely loved it. Reading introduced him to a world that he never imagined could exist. Mrs. Brown never embarrassed him and she never revealed his secret. She simply gave him her time and her encouragement. The best part of the children's home was a married couple, L.D. and Maggie McGee. L.D. was known as Fat Daddy, and he had been the chief of police in Lynette, Alabama. When his last child left the house, he retired from the force, and he and Maggie moved to Troy to live in one house with 24 boys. They were paid something, but it certainly wasn't commensurate with what they did. And it all went toward those boys anyway. Fat Daddy and Mama McGee became Mac's parents, a relationship, a relationship which lasted till their deaths. I knew them only as my grandparents. Like the woman with the two pennies in the Gospels, what they had, they gave 
like the woman with the alabaster jar. They did a good work. And what they poured out was lavish and extravagant. As high school came to an end, the football coaches from Troy State, Florida State, and Georgia Tech came calling. He was sent letters of intent for signing day, but Mac blew out his knee. And in those days, there was no coming back from that. A high school math teacher who had administered an aptitude test told Mac that he ought not to bother with college. It would be, well, a waste of his time. But he had been turned on to a world of books and he had no intention of giving it up. So he took the $100 that the home gave to each kid as they left and he headed to Jasper, Alabama to go to Walker Junior College. He would figure out a way to pay for it. He landed a job as a youth minister at the First Baptist Church of Jasper. The church organist was a Samford student who drove up from Birmingham each weekend. He married her and they followed the pastor of that church to First Baptist Lake Charles, Louisiana. I was born during their time there. Meanwhile, dad earned a BA in history as well as a master's of education and administration at McNeese State. His plan was to be a principal and eventually a superintendent. However, after receiving a call to ministry, our family headed to Louisville, Kentucky in 1968 for Mac to attend seminary. From 1964 to 1971, the first years of their marriage, life was hard. Working and going to school and being a, a parent was tough. Sharon and I can identify with that part. When my mom filed their taxes in 1969, she filled out 12 W-2 forms for my father. They were going from early morning to late at night every single day. Looking back on that time, Max says, we did not have time to be who we were because we were just hanging on. At one point, an anonymous seminary friend slid some cash under their door and an envelope. When seminary students give, are giving you money, yikes. Mac graduated in May 1971, and in June, we moved to Valdosta, or Valdosta for him to begin his first job after seminary. And 47 years later, he is still there. In my father's 56 years as a minister, the demographics of the South have changed dramatically. As industry and wealth have shifted South, and our population has grown, our standard of living has risen greatly. Whereas most Southern Christians used to be poor, or at least relatively close to it, many now are quite affluent. And now we often view the poor with disdain. And when we do help them, it is often out of a sense of noblesse oblige, where we are not just helping those who are less fortunate than us, but those who are, who are somehow less than us. Jesus said in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
James 2, 5 declares that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. The poor, like us, are made in his image. The poor, like us, have diverse gifts and talents. They have the capacity for blessing us in ways we could never imagine. Looking through the stack of letters that my father received at his retirement, I was moved by the many stories and experiences that were shared. Reading those letters, I could not help but think of that barefoot 12-year-old boy who could not read going commando in his overalls, running all over Sand Mountain. How in the world did he end up there having touched so many lives? He ended up there through the financial gifts of many people, gifts great and small that supported the work of the Alabama Baptist Children's Home. Such gifts are important, but you will never break the cycle of poverty by writing checks. If you want to break the cycle of poverty, you have to break some alabaster jars. It requires people who are willing to lavishly and extravagantly pour out themselves for the sake of others, even when it seems a waste to some. It takes people like Mrs. Brown, someone willing to write, someone not willing to write off a 12-year-old kid who can't read as just dumb and lazy. It takes people like Fat Daddy and Maggie McGee who were willing to give up the American dream of a nice house in the suburbs or a house on the lake and trade their empty nest for a nest full of 24 boys. Many people showed up for Mac, providing him with stable, healthy relationships. Jesus said, The poor you will have with you always, and you can show kindness to them whenever you want, anytime you want, really, anytime. The poor you will always have with you. Sometimes one of them might even be your pastor. There was a time when that would have been me and Sharon. Not now, though. We're cool. It's good. In our current preaching series, we're focusing on abundance. I could certainly talk about the abundance my family has experienced now for three generations as a result of the love shown to my father by people like Maggie McGee. Instead, I will close with an image of the abundance God poured out on her. In my Greek readings class on Matthew, we were reading chapter 19 on Wednesday. It tells of the rich young man who goes away grieving because he had many possessions. And Peter asks, we have left everything and followed you. What are we going to get? And Jesus tells them that they like the Son of Man, will sit on thrones and judge the tribes of Israel. Essentially, as brothers and sisters of Jesus, they are royal, and they will all share in the kingdom. And then Jesus says in Matthew nineteen twenty nine, And fields, if for my name's sake, uh, let's see, they will share the kingdom, and fields, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold 
and will inherit eternal life. A hundredfold. There's nothing wrong with preaching a prosperity gospel as long as you have an appropriate understanding of what prosperity actually looks like. What does a hundredfold look like? I told the class that I was reminded of the very last time I saw Mama McGee. We went to visit her at her house in Montgomery, Alabama on Christmas Day. When we pulled up, there was nowhere to park. The street was full of cars and people were parking in the yard. I asked my dad what was going on and he told me that those cars belonged to men who were once boys just like him who came through the children's home in the 50s and 60s. These men were there to visit their mother too bringing the world's largest parade of grandchildren with them. Lives forever changed by someone who was willing to break their own alabaster jar and pour herself out in love, lavishly and extravagantly. May we all experience abundance like that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.